Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. It was more than just a life or death situation. It was like breaking up communities. It was really suppressing certain racial groups and more so than others. There were just so many implications to the pandemic. And now we're just barely picking up the pieces, it feels like, to evaluate in what way were they affected and how can we help them? And how can we start to put it all back together? You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke, who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. I'm Maddie Braxick, and one of the highlights for the Cook Center in 2022 was our Pandemic Divide Conference, which we held at the Washington Duke Inn in late October. Hundreds of attendees from throughout the country came together to hear speakers from Duke University faculty and other scholars, practitioners, and journalists. Topics included the impact of COVID-19 on wealth, entrepreneurship, health, housing, employment, and education, with an emphasis on determining steps that could have been taken to mitigate the full impact of the pandemic. We know we can't prevent future pandemics, but we can certainly learn from what happened in the past few years. So today, we're going to give you a taste of the conference. Our production team at EarFluence interviewed several of the attendees, asking them why they attended the conference, what impact the pandemic has had on them, their work and their communities, and what aha moments they had. Here's Sergio Berrera, Assistant Professor of Economics at Virginia Tech, on why he came to the conference. Mostly because I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions, at least from what I've seen, about the effect of the pandemic on um, racial and ethnic inequality. And so I was very interested to kind of learn how exactly the pandemic led to worse outcomes for particularly black and Hispanic um, uh, households in the United States. But I also kind of wanted to understand a little bit more about like why inequality in the past um, led to these uh, disparities in outcomes, particularly when you're thinking about like cases or even thinking about deaths as a result of the pandemic. So I've learned a lot just by watching a few of the, the seminars and got a lot to think about. There was definitely a lot to think about. For me, one of the talks that I can't stop thinking about was Dispatches from the Frontline, a panel hosted by executive nurse leader, Dr. Gloria Alston McNeil, 
Dr. McNeil interviewed nurses from all throughout the Duke hospital system, and they offered their perspectives from the front lines during some of the most challenging periods of the pandemic and the inequities that were revealed within healthcare. But let's get back to the attendees. Hi, my name is Timothy Green IV, um, and I'm here representing the city of Albuquerque as culture change leader, and I'm also here as a PhD student from the University of New Mexico. Like the rest of the country, it really devastated our most underserved communities, especially when we started to look at existing disparities that were already there, structural disparities around health, education, uh, mental health, violence. And so within the city of Albuquerque, you know, we, had a, we have a pretty progressive mayor. We had, um, you know, science-based and data-driven uh, research and, and kind of a uh, focus towards that. But I think it's had a, a real impact, like I said, on our underserved communities, um, specifically migrant and immigrant communities. And then we have the legacy uh, of colonization, right? From the Spanish, from, then from Mexico, and then Anglo-Saxon America. And I think being at the intersection of the Latinx, Latino, Latina diaspora, I can't exclude also, you know, the 24 indigenous nations we have there. So we're at a unique intersection. But I think right now, uh, within the city of Albuquerque, what I do as culture change leader, we're trying to, to leverage racial equity tools, right? We're trying to create feedback uh, mechanisms and accountability mechanisms so that way we can make sure equity, diversity, and inclusion is happening within the city of Albuquerque. That means, you know, cluster hiring, bringing in uh, marginalized and underserved uh, um, communities coming into work, training people around uh, anti-racist education so that way we can all work together and, and inside this democracy. So this conference is wonderful because what's happening is, is you're having a confluence of different um, intersectional studies, right? You're having people from economics, you're having people from critical education, you have uh, folks coming from the health, right? And they're, and they're kind of all having this framework that racism is an epidemiological challenge that is killing us, right? It's not only killing BIPOC community, but it's affecting the white community as well. And so I think the beautiful thing is we're having all of these people come together to try to um, push theory forward so that we can put it into action. My name is Paula Terrell Perez, and I am a professor at North Carolina Central University. We know that with HBCUs, we have a lot of support for our students. However, I think that with the shutdown, what we didn't consider is that some students actually don't have anywhere to go home. And that came to the forefront, that just because we say, now you can go home, school's closed, some students were actually homeless. And so their only place or residency was on campus. So that was something that really came to our, uh, I guess we wanted to put it at the forefront, and also food insecurity. You know, some students didn't have a job. They depended on their resources on campus for food and shelter. So that was a real wake-up call for a lot of professors. My name is Dr. Vivian Carter. I am the chair of the Department of Psychology and Sociology on the campus of Tuskegee University. Okay, uh, what brings you to the Pandemic Divide Conference? Well, one of the things that brings me here is the fact that you're bringing together scholars to really talk about the impact of uh, COVID on those uh, what we call minoritized communities and, and bringing that together with a lot of the young um, undergraduate as well as graduate students. So that's what's intriguing me. 
how's the energy been so far? Like uh, a, a lot, you said a lot of young graduate students. Um, there's a lot of great speakers here who are, you know, not young students. No, the energy has been wonderful, and the speakers have been absolutely fabulous. Um, I'm very excited about the book that's coming out and look forward to actually utilizing it, a lot of it in my class, especially I was today when they were talking about the uh, student debt. Um, that's something that I utilize in my courses that I teach because I teach a course on health disparities, bioethics, and policy. And all of this at this conference ties into that. So I'm excited about uh, what we're learning here and how it's being applied and talking about how we can reduce that income and wealth gap. And then also addressing the issue of disparity, racial disparity from, and, and they haven't said it exactly, but they've described it from a social justice standpoint. I think that a lot has been talked about equality and equity, um, but we have to understand something that unless you deal with the structure, the system that continues to perpetuate this, we're not going to have a solution. It's like a Band-Aid to a mortal wound. And, and so in looking at this from a social justice standpoint brings about that equity and that equality that we're striving for. What, what people or institutions can have the greatest impact on that social justice? Like who, who can make the biggest difference here? I, I think that it's, it's a collective. It's not just one, okay? Uh, we have to build these coalitions, um, working together, looking at our common ground um, that we have. And that includes, you know, the minority-serving institutions, the PWIs, the political system. I, I was glad to see um, some of the uh, people who are working in your legislature uh, coming in. Um, to really listen and, and get a, a, a clear picture of, of what's happening. I think it's a collective. It's not one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other aha moments from this conference or speakers that you want to shout out? Oh, I always love Dr. Satcher. <laughs> Dr. Satcher, um, we have a, a, a great history, of course, with Tuskegee. He's one of the first, he was the Surgeon General um, that did get the apology uh, for the United States Public Health Service study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. So that was Dr. Satcher who got the president to issue the apology. At first, they had talked with him and said, well, you know, you're over uh, CDC, so you were former um, director of CDC, so, you know, it should come. And he said, no, it has to come from the highest level because, again, this wrong was done at that level. My name is Sayil Camacho. Uh, my academic affiliation is a visiting scholar at the Duke Program in Education, but my full-time job is the Director of Reparative Justice and Partnerships at the Equity Research Cooperative. I think the earlier conversation around uh, tenure-track opportunities and how to support an increasingly diverse professoriate uh, personally really spoke to me as someone who experiences systemic inequality and the type of glass barrier. Uh, to provide a specific example, Latinas in the professoriate make up less than 1% of full professors, uh, and especially when you consider selective universities, I think it's even less. So it's really exciting that uh, there's a theory and a praxis 
to addressing what's a racialized labor force. Um, and that was, that was very moving uh, because it's hard. Well, theory is one thing. What do we do about it? Um, I think that uh, the approach that was spoken on was really powerful because there were actually systems and processes with theory in terms of retention, understanding the challenges that someone from a historically excluded background is um, especially going to interface with, like in pursuing their uh, doctoral studies, but then being part of the knowledge production process on a faculty level. So a lot of solutions, but one of the most important was as a whole uh, institution recognizing that systemic inequality exists for professors, I think was really important. Hi, my name is Victoria Bryant, and I'm a current senior at Carolina studying public policy and political science. So, I definitely think mental health was the biggest inequity I've seen. I think, of course, when you're considering all of these different policy areas, they're going to be inherently affected by race just because we live in a racialized society. But I think that college's responses to the mental health crisis during COVID for sure was subpar. And I think that definitely led to some inequities, whether that be in achievement rates, whether that be in retention rates for different marginalized populations. And I so, so I believe that a more robust mental health package is a need to ensure that students are able to kind of get on the same page and have, you know, equitable opportunities to succeeding in these relative spaces. Um, in my opinion, it's equity over equality. Just really, um, when thinking about student needs, really specifying them to the populations of interest. You know, you can't, there is no universal approach. And I think in education and in mental health, we've often seen universities and different stakeholders try to do a one size fits all. But I think there really needs to be more emphasis on the specific needs of each student population. Dr. Kristen Cooksey Stowers, I am an assistant professor at UConn in the Department of Allied Health Sciences and the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health, but a former uh, graduate student of Sandy Darity and of this Cook Center. The pandemic shut down all of our conferences and times to convene and sort of get up to date on what we've been up to. So it's been so exciting that we're now we're getting back to in-person convenings and just seeing this, this amazing book that's coming out. And I have two graduate students here at the meeting. So just an opportunity to, yeah, share our work and to sort of hear what the Cook Center has been up to. What did you see at UConn uh, during the pandemic um, from an uh, inequity standpoint? So one of the main initiatives that I've been uh, involved with at UConn uh, focuses on college food insecurity among the college students. Um, I think historically there's not been a lot of focus on that because there's sort of this perception that, you know, once you've made it to college, you've arrived and that there's a certain type of like almost a homogenous student that's coming from an affluent background that has a safety net and so why would anyone be concerned about surveying for food insecurity or certainly uh, intervening uh, from a structural standpoint? But we see at the, um, there was a state mandate for all colleges in Connecticut, really nationally, states were required to report food insecurity um, among the population. And not only did we see um, concerning disparities you know, among black and brown students at UConn, but there were a geographic disparities. So the students at Storrs Flagship had lower risk than those on our regional campuses, which are in the urban centers. So we've spent the last three years adding more survey data to that work and doing um, more formative research on that. But really, 
uh, partnering and, um, and leveraging that data to advocate for structural change with the provost office, like what should higher education institutions, uh, universities be doing to address food security now that we know about it? I think I am biased towards structural long-term sustainable change. So where, you know, cooking demonstrations and sort of giveaways are nice and, and you need them, I really think that these are icing type of solutions and really we should be thinking about physical structural changes to universities that can, you know, really respond to the shift in demographics among college students. Because the shift in uh, socio-demographics and the background students come from is because some of the innovation in higher ed policies and, F- and FAFSA, that's how you're seeing now more of a, a shift of low-income background students coming. So now it's time to structurally respond. What are the policies? You know, are you able to accommodate, you know, students who are eligible for SNAP so they don't have to go off campus? And, you know, are there initiatives that you can create in your cafeteria? There's some really interesting strategies for, like, $1 cafeterias, marketplaces, because there are some, like in the case of our regional campuses, there are some universities that are located in food deserts and food swamps. And so even if money is not just the only option, there's an environmental limitation. So it means that in some cases you might need a marketplace that provides an equitable balance of healthy and unhealthy food or more convenient foods, if you will. Else, they're at the, they're limited by the physical built food environment, which in some places can literally be uh, just as, as, as uh, suboptimal as the sort of housing neighborhood, um, corner stores, bodegas, fast food chains, right? So how do we make sure that there's also the option of fresh produce for our college students? I really enjoyed um, the panel with uh, Dr. Bentley Edwards, partly because um, I also do social determinants of health work. And so, but just, you know, the, the constant reminder and hearing how other people are conceptualizing the, the interconnectedness of social determinants of health, housing and neighborhoods. So I do a lot of research on neighborhoods. So just their you know, comments on labor conditions and work conditions and living conditions and, and how it really it's important to think about those upstream factors of health and health inequities um, and how the pandemic, um, you know, exacerbated those inequities, but also shed light for folks who weren't paying attention to inequities that were longstanding. I'm Monica Garcia Perez. I'm a professor at St. Cloud University and also a research affiliate with the Cook Center. I think one of the of the topics that were like I was uh, drawing to was trying to get the background and a structural institutional in which COVID was happening. That was very interesting to me. And and I'm a lot of because it's something that I'm not exposed all the time. A lot of uh, the institutional background. The presentations have been for me like very interesting, but also um, the yesterday was the Asian community and looking at groups that normally are no the typical that we see. I mean, there, there is the disparity between black and white, but or Hispanics are the one that I work in. So looking at the numbers with the Asian community was something that was a aha moment. Like oh, like the Philippines where the the highest highest mortality rate in uh, COVID within the group of Asian. I didn't know that. It's like every one of the spaces that COVID affected can be exposed in a conference like this where people, different researchers are like putting the light on a different corner of the room. But apart from that, I think now the movement would be about what are the policies on recovering because COVID created disparities and some of those disparities are, again, because affected the group differently. Some people were affected more than one time or more in more than one way due to COVID.
And then I was understanding how we can have all this intersectionality, but also in terms of policies. My name is Alejandro Gutierrez Lee. I am an assistant professor at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. I am a labor economist by training. I think the conference overall has been great. It has been a great opportunity to really meet people working in different fields. So I really like that there is a group of interdisciplinary researchers from political science, economics, um, other uh, social disciplines, really trying to better understand some of the outcomes that we have seen during the pandemic and some of the consequences in terms of, you know, social and economic variables of interest across different groups. So I really think that the conference and the speakers have, have all been great. It has been really uh, a great opportunity to, to learn about things that even though we know uh, could be happening, we, we don't have as of yet because the pandemic is still ongoing as good information as the one that, that has been delivered to us here. So I think it's a great opportunity to have people together. I think public policy plays a crucial role. Um, even though the pandemic is still ongoing, we already have enough information to better understand the different impacts that um, the virus had on groups across the country. The policy plays a key role at affecting the outcomes, leveling the playing field, and also ensuring that um, all groups have access to equal opportunities in terms of health benefits, in terms of treatment, um, not that we have vaccines, that we have um, some other, um, you know, treatments for COVID. It is important to ensure that every single group, particularly the, the communities that have been affected the most, have proper access to, to these benefits that science has brought to us. My name is Donald Alcindor. I'm an associate professor at Meharry Medical College and associate adjunct professor in infectious disease at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Okay, so what have you seen uh, other than um, hesitancy for vaccines? What have you seen as far as systemic inequities um, as it resulted uh, from COVID-19 in the medical field? Yeah, so I've seen people uh, that just basically have nowhere to get to uh, where there's vaccine testing or vaccines themselves. And so what we did at Meharry Medical College is to have a mobile unit that allowed us to go where the people were meaning that we had a number of people that had poor access to vaccines that were living in public housing. And so what we did is we brought the vaccines to them, along with the testing, along with the information that was designed to deal with the mistrust in those communities against the vaccine. My name is Deborah, and I'm a freshman at Duke University. An aha moment for me was just realizing the, the cycle in the system in which, like, specifically Black students in like all the states, um, I'm from New York, and like how just the wealth gap in America, how that influences where students go to school. Like my family were middle income and that impacted my financial aid and like the amount of loans I have to take out and how like um, I wanna go into the medical field. So um, for me, you wanna get a higher paying job within the medical field, but then that's leading to like a lack of people who want to work in like lesser paying jobs within the medical field. So it's kind of like leading to an imbalance. I'm learning a lot. So yeah. It's... So how did it affect your, how did COVID-19 affect your um, high school experience from a, like a mental health standpoint? Um, 
definitely hard being away from friends and like lack of socializing, which I think everyone experienced, but the rigor of coursework definitely went down. Like, and I think that that kind of led to a lot of students, you know, falling off and especially in senior year coming back into school, there was just like, just a lack of knowledge on like basic things. And it left a lot of students at a loss when it comes, when it came to like SAT time and uh, SAT prep, which was not, happening over COVID. So it kind of left a lot of minority students at a disadvantage because one, you know, your academic life and the way teachers are teaching, they're being a little bit lazy about it. And there's not really regulations on how teachers should teach because it was just like new for everyone. So it kind of left a lot of students at a disadvantage if you didn't, you know, take it upon yourself to put the effort in. So it was like really easy to get an A and like What's, what's that saying for when students go to college? Like, that's putting you at a huge disadvantage. Hi, I'm Javay Grooms, and I'm an assistant professor of economics at Howard University and the co-director of the Center for Equitable Growth and Sustainable Society. The biggest impact that happened simultaneously, and, you know, this isn't COVID-19. This is uh, the Black Lives Matter happened simultaneously during the pandemic, and it was hard for Howard in general to respond was, the racist hate, the, we had a lot of bomb threats, we've had cyber attacks, we've had um, a lot of situations happening at that time and during a time when a lot of people are working remotely, um, a little bit more difficult to communicate. So I think as a university, it was a difficult time and then it was exacerbated by some of the hate that was brought on from disagreements with the Black Lives Matter movement. The conference has been great. It's been great because in academia, a lot of the conferences are very academic, very research papers, um, very heavy, very dense. These talks have ran the gamut and have been really interesting from very technical research to very macro kind of thoughts on the pandemic. My name is Sonia Douglas, and I am a professor of education leadership at Teachers College, Columbia University. And founding director of the Black Education Research Center. I was invited to present um, the findings from the COVID study that the Black Education Research Center conducted last year. So basically we um, share the findings from the study which really point to the need to protect and defend the rights of black children um, to make sure that they're learning in safe and affirming spaces. We also talked about the importance of investing in mental health, counseling and psychological supports and services uh, in schools for both students and teachers commitment to professional learning and the development of educators to make sure that um, they are prepared and equipped to, to educate children, to really revamp curriculum and think about what we are teaching and ensuring that we're teaching the truth and that children have access to the truth and critical conversations that can help them to be really informed um, members of society. And then we also talked about the importance of um, viewing parents, community members, uh, and black scholars and researchers as equal partners in developing the, solution, the solutions um, that will lead to improved educational opportunities. So uh, as a speaker, uh, sometimes you, you thrive on the, the feedback that you get. What has been the feedback so far and what have been the aha moments from your talk um, that uh, the people have, have um, come up to you and, and, and asked you about? I think one of the most exciting things is to have a group of undergraduate students um, who are at North Carolina A&T University who kind of just, you know, said that the, the comments really resonated with them in terms of the focus on supporting um, the education of black children and youth. 
um, and that it actually piqued their interest in a career in education. So that was, I think, uh, really great to hear, especially given that group and what they've experienced in COVID and I think how critical their voice and their contributions will be going forward. So that was really heartwarming and, and encouraging. Hey, it's Maddie again, and you've been listening to a snapshot from the Pandemic Divide Conference. Another fascinating part of the conference was our poster session, featuring more than 40 scholars from across the country, as well as our own undergraduate students from Duke, as a part of our Global Inequality Research course with Dr. Adam Hollowell. Scholars were invited to submit their own research on COVID-19 and inequality, presenting us with a wide array of research on food insecurity, housing, homeschooling, policy analysis, and more. Our production team had the opportunity to interview some of the presenters. My name is Luis Basurta. So we were interested in looking at how the pandemic affected preventative care. So we were interested in seeing if, for example, mammograms and colonoscopies before the pandemic started looked different, um, you know, at the end of 2020. And then we were also interested to see if there was additional differences by along racial ethnic lines. So yeah, that's what we were presenting. And um, we find obviously a massive reduction in preventative care around like the time they declared the national emergency. So March, April, big, big drop. And then we see a rebound effect um, starting during the summer. Um, the rebound effect is not nearly as like the same magnitude as the drop. So there's a lot of people that left um, the health system and did not come back yet. So yeah, we were just trying to, you know, see what that looked like because when we started looking, or, you know, at the early stages of the pandemic, no one was looking at this stuff and you had no idea the magnitude of changes. Um, and then for the racial ethnic differences, we find some differences during the drop at the beginning. Um, not so much during the recovery or rebound period. I think I was surprised by the magnitude of the decline. I was expecting it to be, you know, a big decline, but it was just massive. And I mean, that's worrisome because the health system is making choices. So there's a um, trade-off. You, you don't want people to die now of COVID, but how will this impact, you know, these like cancers that might go unnoticed for a while. Yeah, I think it was really impactful to hear the nurses um, talking about their experiences. I think, you know, we all kind of had like had some sense of how difficult it was, but just hearing it from them yesterday was really moving. And I mean, if, if I'm ever so appreciative of like the work they do, but now so, so much more. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was really nice to hear how they like group together and, you know, push through us as a team. So, yeah. My name is Maya Abdurazak. My research is about uh, food swamps, uh, prediction of uh, food shopping habits and the food access among racial minority in the North Hartford Promix zone in Connecticut. We started this research based on the evidence that new establishment of supermarket does not necessarily increase frequency of shopping at food stores. So we decided to assess to know whether food swam predict this behavior. And when I say food swam, it is areas with a concentration of fast food, 
convenience stores mostly labeled as unhealthy stores compared to the healthier alternatives, which are the supermarkets and other larger grocery stores. We assessed their frequency of shopping in these stores, that is both the fast food and then the um, supermarkets, to see which one they frequently shopped in and then why. So when we did it, we realized that they shopped in both. They go to both supermarkets and they also shop in the fast food. So we, we, we intended to, not intention, we suggested actually that they should dismantle the fast food areas because that is one of the reasons, because it's of low quality food stores. They wanted to bring supermarkets. They brought the supermarket, but they are still not shopping in the supermarkets, but rather accessing, which is much more convenient because it's rather closer and it's at each corner of their neighborhood they can find their fast food. So people go there more often than the supermarket. I've learned about the black history, though um, here I'm black, but I'm not from America. I'm from Ghana uh, in Africa. So I just came here to do my master's and through this conference I've learned about a lot about the black history, how they came together to form their to care for themselves in terms of health when it was not available and what we can do now if we are still facing these same issues because it has been done before so we can still come together to fight for our right to access to health care, to access to food, to access to other things. So if, if, if blacks are united and they are able to advocate for themselves, at least they will get equal services as their counterparts. A lot of people are there. America is big. We have a lot of people and it might not be easier for the government maybe to capture. And so the one that talks most, the one that advocates most, they pay more attention to you. So it's, it will be good for them to also rise up and then advocate to get attention. And I also learned how inequalities can impact the outcome of health. Like that through the COVID-19, uh, one of the presentation which assesses impact of the inequalities on um, food, like on COVID-19 outcome. We realized blacks were dying and they thought maybe blacks were the one with the disease, but it's actually because of their states, housing states, work conditions, and all those things that were impacting um, their health than the other counterparts. So if we improve the health of the blacks, uh, the, the living conditions of the blacks communities, they will get better health outcome as their other counterparts. So all in all, I learned that to eradicate uh, health inequalities, you have to eradicate inequality in every aspect of a person's life. Inequality in housing, inequality in work condition, every aspect of inequality before you'll be able to eradicate inequality in health. That was wonderful. That, that we were expecting, right? So in some way our quantitative data didn't show like something dramatic, right? And then also when, when the, I think what is, has been really good about this event is that um, it is showing, you know, we're learning, we're going back to really um, learn what was the impact of the pandemic. And what I like about it is that it's really make a, a lot of the presenters, um, they not only kind of like show, you know, this impact, but they also move forward that and then provide recommendations of how to move forward.
So I think conferences like these are very important right now because I think, you know, now we know, right? For example, the last presentation showed that there was a, a, a large drop on math scores for Latinos, right? So during the pandemic. So what are we going to do about it, right? So I think that's why I think this, this conference is very relevant. And I, and I hope, you know, that it brings more attention to what do we do next to fix um, the challenges that the pandemic brought, especially for uh, minority communities. James Honoreveli. I'm here with Carolina Small Business Development Fund, uh, CSBDF for short. We're presenting a poster uh, in conjunction with Brazil NC uh, about the effects of loans versus grants for small businesses in North Carolina during the pandemic. So essentially during the pandemic, we administered grants and loans to small businesses that were that applied for them. And then during the past like six months or so, we administered a survey to follow up on those grants and loans. And the idea was to measure the extent of impact of grants and loans and to see if there was a difference between the two. In one case alone, you have to pay the amount back at some point with a nominal interest rate. And then a grant, it's their money to use. So we were looking at in what way are these financial assistance tools helping small businesses? Are they um, specifically helping them develop greater social capital? We're looking at the their ability to connect with other businesses within their community and whether a loan or a grant helped in more in one way. So that there were a number of different categories we were looking at to, to gauge if there was a difference based on the survey results. I was surprised. I thought that grants would be far and away something that were easily preferred and created better outcomes for the small businesses. But as you would see on our poster, we have a graph at the very end showing our results and it's split 50-50. In fact, two of our categories where we're testing the difference have no difference, at, at least no statistically significant difference at all between loans and grant recipients. On the other hand, two favored loans and two favored grants. So I, I honestly thought, you know, a, a small business can get essentially free money and very few restrictions and do with what they would like and needed. But it really didn't pan out to be that that was far and away the best tool. I think the scope of the pandemic and its effects on people, organizations, communities, businesses, all, all these different topics are being covered with all these posters and they are showing that it, it was more than just a life or death situation. It was like breaking up communities. It was really suppressing certain racial groups and more so than others. There were just so many implications to the pandemic. And now we're just barely picking up the pieces it feels like to evaluate in what way were they affected and how can we help them and how can we start to put it all back together. Michaela Luffel. I'm here with um, Dr. Vivian Carter. Um, we attend, well, she's a professor and I'm a student at Tuskegee University. So today I am presenting the Macon County COVID-19 Task Force. And to basically give you guys a rundown, March 13th, 2020, that's when we got our first case of COVID. 
and not a lot of people had access to clinics or um, hospitals to get screened or get the vaccination. So um, Tuskegee came together as a community to create the task force which helps um, screening and vaccines. Honestly, I was excited um, to let people know that we are here to help. Um, Tuskegee, if you've ever been, it's nothing but land and it's no clinics around, nobody really there to help people. So I'm really big on helping people, helping my community, and I just want people to know like, hey, we're here. If you want the vaccination, we're here. We, we partnered up with different clinics as well around. And if you want to get screened, we're here as well. And also our results, uh, we helped up to 75% of our population. So I'm really happy about that. So if you guys do not know, Tuskegee is very expensive, almost 42,000 a year. And um, I'm part of the middle class community. So, you know, we don't, we're not poor, but we don't make as much. We're not wealthy. So I don't really get a lot of loans or grants. So what I did take away is there are some loans for a psychology major because I'm also a psychology major. So that helped me out. To be completely honest, I did not know anything about this conference. My professor was like, hey, I need you here. This is for the task force. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And, you know, I want people to know about Tuskegee University, get our name out there, and as well as what we do for our community. So I was just very happy and just very excited to let people know, like, this is what Tuskegee University is, not the syphilis study that you guys misconstrued on the false information or anything like that. This is what Tuskegee University is. Amalia, A-M-A-L-I-A, Chamorros, Elizabeth Zamudio. So we were presenting on the impact of the pandemic on Latino K-12 student education. We actually released a report in July at our annual conference in San Antonio. Um, we're here representing Unidos US, which is the largest Latino civil rights organization in the nation. And so our report took a look back at the progress that had been made over the last 30 years and some of the gains that we had made and then the impact of the pandemic and how we have to really focus on recovery of Latino students going forward. So we also provided a set of policy recommendations that can be taken at the federal and state level to make sure that our students get back on track. Taking the recent NAEP results from 2022, we see that Latino students have had tremendous setbacks where we were traditionally from between 1990 to 2019, we had seen advancement of Latino student success. And unfortunately, due the, to the pandemic, we're seeing the side effects of a drop in, um, in EL learners' um, advancement in math scores and reading scores, and then in also in college graduation and high school graduation uh, rates. I mean, there's a ton of funding that the federal government did provide to the states over the last couple of years that states and districts are still figuring out how to use those resources. And so we do have a set of uh, ideas as to how they can best use those to support the students that need them the most, from meaningful parent engagement to families to make sure that that continues and that parents are seen as equal partners with the schools to make sure that their students are getting all the help that they need. Also making sure that we are making targeted uh, supports for academic recovery. And that includes uh, tutoring, after school supports, uh, summer learning to make sure that students have all those wraparound services that they need to be able to continue to make progress in their, in their unfinished learning. What I really enjoyed with the conference was the intersectionality of the, there were so many diverse speakers. We had a different 
um, sectors that were represented in the conference. And we see how the pandemic not only affected the education sector that we're most intimately involved with, but it affected so many other areas, not only health, but then also we see there's the mass incarceration forum that's happening tomorrow. And um, it was really interesting to see all of our different sectors coming together and speaking about the effects of this large scale pandemic that affected all of us. You know, we just appreciate the invitation to come and attend and present at the conference. It's always great to, you know, go to new places. This is my first time in North Carolina. I've never been on the Duke University campus. It was also an opportunity to, as someone who works in education, including higher education issues, right, to be able to go and visit and present at an institution of higher education such as Duke. Well, thank you so much to everyone who is willing to answer a few spur-of-the-moment questions. For more information on the Pandemic Divide Conference, including blog posts, speaker videos, and poster presentations, visit socialequity.duke.edu. You can reach our conference recap page from the homepage slider or under About, then Events. Keep in touch with the Cook Center by subscribing to our newsletter, following us on social media, and, of course, subscribing to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. Thanks again for listening and Happy New Year. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook, the first tenured Black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, The Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. To order the book Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Maddie Braxick, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.